everyone. Welcome to the Plants and Pipettes podcast. Um, I am here. I'm Tegan. Um, Yoram is also there. He is Yoram. Hello. Uh, <laughs> Yoram is doing last minute <laughs> panics um, to mention a very exciting event that happened uh, yesterday in real time, but like last week in your time. I don't know how this works. Um, Tell us about the event. <laughs> the event is um, a conference, the MBP 2023 conference, the Molecular Biology of Plants conference. And we are both not actively working in plant research anymore. So why are we talking about a plant conference? It's because we are now an award-winning podcast <laughs> uh, that you're all listening to. And this award-winning podcast was awarded a Science Communication Award um yesterday in our time um, at the Molecular Biology of Plants conference and it was a great honor it was great fun we had like we stopped by virtually over zoom for a quick chat and we're just really glad that that people like what we're doing on this like weird little blog and podcast yeah it was super nice um, and also the fact that we got awarded it despite I mean Yoram said not in the field I think that's fine for science communication we don't have to be actively at the lab that's okay but also like some of us not German and this was like part of the German Society for Botany so also very nice and as I mentioned at the award um, science communication award even though we chose to name our podcast and blood something that's a little bit hard to spell and pronounce I would say pipette Pipette. <laughs> yeah. Every time I type it, I forget how many P's and how many T's there are supposed to be in it. So this feels like we a bit failed science communication 101 by, <laughs> yes. by God. like the alliteration is really nice. Plants and pipettes. I love that. But I mean, yeah. Anyway, thank you very much to whoever decided that we should get this award. It was yes. very nice and we're very flattered and yeah, a little bit proud. And hopefully there's something on their website now. I mean, you guys won't click the link. You're listening to a podcast. You're probably like running outside or something. <laughs> but um, I did share the news with my family. And my mom, <laughs> I told my mom, I was like, we won an award. And, I, and then I sort of told her what the award was. And she's like, it's not on the website. <laughs> so she called my bluff. Um, <laughs> but maybe something will be up um, by now. Yeah, we're yeah. linking we're linking to the tweets that's, that's officially announcing that. So it's not something we made up. It's not something that we dreamt up. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, you never know with us. <laughs> I heard that confidence is actually the most important part of the modern CV. So, yeah, you know, yeah, nobody's fact checking CVs. Um, it's a life hack. You can write in there whatever you want. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, award winning. Yeah, I mean, you can also just like award award winning is a vague thing anyway. Like, what award? Uh, we've all we've all won awards. Like, I got gold stars when I was in school. Does that kind of count? I guess. <laughs> Anyway, yes. On with the show. Um, we are recording a little bit earlier. Temp Do we need to say that? I mean, yeah. We like it's. We will have a little bit of a shorter show because we have to record in advance, and we're doing this now during the day, which is really unusual. Usually, we do it at night. I'm usually blackout drunk when we start recording. Oh, Today, geez. I'm completely like I only had like free coffee, but uh, um, so. It's for us a little bit weird because it's still bright outside, but also it, we mm. don't have as much time today. So it will be a little bit shorter, but it will be just as fun. Yes. And the reason is because I am traveling to the US next week, um, which is my first time in the US. So yeah, I'm going to be dancing through different time zones and doing, I don't know, seeing, I guess the US has nice plants, maybe. 
I, I guess sure, so. Why not? <laughs> I, it's a it's a big country. They should have at least one interesting plant, I think. All right, that will be my aim. Find an interesting plant. If anybody has a really interesting <laughs> plant to find, I'm going to be on the east coast, sort of easty, northy coast of the US. So, yeah. <laughs> show us <laughs> the one interesting show us, plant. Show us the one interesting plant. The most interesting plant in that area. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun Wow, seamless transition into your fact as well, straight from the jingle to your fact. Um, Tegan, do you know what intercropping is? Yes. Is that, the, is that the end of the question? Is that how you <laughs> successfully communicate? Uh, Award-winning yeah, podcast, I want to say. <laughs> I feel, are we worse at this during the daytime? Who knows? Um, so I guess intercropping is when you, I mean... I feel it's in the name. You intercrop, so you have one crop and you grow something else in between that crop, um, hopefully with co-benefits for both. So you might grow like a larger sort of more tree species. I think it's quite common with mm -hmm. coffee, for example. And then you put something that likes a little bit more shade underneath it. And yeah, hopefully it's sort of a win-win scenario and you maximize your fertile soil and output. Yeah, exactly. Uh, one thing that I find uh, more often like in, in, in Germany or Central Europe is the combination of beans and grains or like uh, like pulses and grains, for example, lentils and wheat um, mm -hmm. that are grown in the same plot. Not to the same extent as it was, it, it was done in the past, but it's still uh, done today sometimes. Oh, actually, that makes me question. Is intercropping applying to both spatial and temporal things or just one? So like oh. you could you could intercrop by doing it seasonally, like, oh, we grew this in summer and then in the autumn we put some beans in there. Or you could do it spatially where it's sort of different layers. I think according to my very quick Google search and the little blurb that it gives at the, at the beginning there, it's a proximity-based um, growing together. So although I think... Spatial. Yeah, spatial-based. Um, mm. Although I think, now that you say it, I think I've heard it, used in the past also as a temporal intercropping. So you switch up the crops that you're growing and you're not growing maize for five years in a row, but you do like maize and then some legumes and then something else. Um, but here we're talking about spatial intercropping and the effect that it has on pollinators. Um, you can imagine that if, you, for example, you intercrop a plot of beans with, uh, with wheat, that mm -hmm. this changes the attractiveness of the plot to pollinators because the beans have flowers that are interesting to pollinators. Wheat doesn't have flowers and is therefore less interesting to pollinators. Um, and you could imagine that if you start growing wheat in between your beans, so you're spacing out the beans, that this might have detrimental effects on the pollinators in the area because suddenly they have to travel further to get from, from flower to flower than if you only have beans and you don't have anything in between there. That was the question that the researchers wanted to address. Oh, sorry, just just so we don't get hate mail. So wheat, it's an angiosperm. It does have flowers. It's just it's a self-pollinator, so it doesn't need pollinators. Yeah. That's what you meant. Exactly. That's what I, what I meant. It's... it's for the pollinators, it is as it is as <laughs> if it doesn't need no flowers. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> From a pollinator point of view, the plant has no flowers. <laughs> and so now researchers have looked at the the intercropping effects uh, or, or the effects of intercropping towards pollinators. It's uh, research by Felix Kirsch et al. Um, and they found that uh, intercropped plots are visited just as much by wild. Uh, um, 
wild bees and honeybees as monocultured flower dense plots. Um, and that could be that there is less competition for the individual beans plants uh, uh, between each other, and therefore mm -hmm. they can make sweeter flowers. They can produce more nectar and therefore be more attractive. Like each individual flower is more attractive to the pollinators, so they are making up for the lack of attractiveness through less dense flower patterns. Um, and so this just is another reason to look deeper into intercropping. I know that like, it's a practice that was done more often than it is today because it is harder to go with a combine harvester over an intercropped field because you have to make sure that you only harvest the thing that you want to harvest or both have to be ripe at the same time. So mm -hmm. And for example, if you grow lentils and wheat together, you can harvest them at the same time, but then you have to separate the two grains again from each other. And there are ways to do that, but it's just more complicated technically to do than if you would have a plot of wheat and a plot of lentils and you harvest them separately and then you have separate batches of, of, your, of your crops. Um, but in terms of biodiversity and also sort of resistance of your of your plots to to diseases and pests it might be a good idea to invest in intercropping and thanks to this study we know that pollinators won't be less likely to visit a plot that's intercropped very cool i have something that's also maybe about crops uh, well it's sort of it's not really directly about crop crops, but in some ways, all plant science is about crops, if we really <laughs> think hard enough. Um, this is a paper that came out in JXB quite recently, and I have only just seen Yoram's show notes and have seen that Yoram has realized that JXB had a Rubisco special and has taken some stories from that. So it's going to be a bit of a JXB heavy show today. Oh, <laughs> I didn't even realize. I like I plucked them from, from a different source, but I didn't realize that it's all JXP. It, it's fine, Yara. If somebody puts Rubisco on the title, you're going to go to that like catnip. It's it's what we expect. <laughs> CRISPR or Rubisco, somewhere in there. Um, my story is a little bit separate from this, and it's based on research that came out by Eva Piscords and colleagues, and it's called Doubled Haploid Induction Generates Extensive Differential DNA Methylation in Arabidopsis. Um, so as I said, it is actually studied in Arabidopsis, but the the method, the thing that they're studying is this doubled haploid induction, and that has a lot of relevance for crops. Um, so before I go into this, I just want to say that I read a summary of this work that is by Eduardo Matteo Bonmati um, in the same journal. So it's kind of a the journal's own summary of this work, and that was a really nice read. So if you're interested, I would recommend that. So doubled haploid induction it seems like almost an oxymoron because haploid is halving the genome and then doubling is obviously doubling it. So you basically halve something and then double it again. Do you know the reason for this, Yerm? Yeah, I think it's when you bring two haploid species or cultivars or something together and you make them fuse in such a way that they form again a diploid cell line. That is then that is then stable and that you can then continue to grow and and often multiplication of genetic material has beneficial effects for the crops. Like I'm thinking about like the strawberries that have more chromosomes and therefore get bigger. So maybe that's something you do in breeding. So what Yoram did there was provide an example of something that's very interesting, but absolutely not correct at all. So ignore <laughs> all of that. Um, it is it is somewhat, somewhat related. I'm giving you points for somewhat related um, 10 <laughs> points. Why not? So it's actually when you're breeding different plants, you're doing traditional breeding and you're, or, or, I mean, maybe modern breeding as well. And you finally found find a plant that has all the perfect things, like it's doing things 
really, really great. And you've like got the gene variants that you want. Like the a potato. That, a perfect, a, a perfect potato. You've made the perfect potato. Okay. The problem is that, as we know, the, the standard sort of diploid, the idea that we have of organisms is that they've got two copies of each chromosomes. Um, and that's not true for all crops. Some crops have more because they're difficult, but let's just say you've got two copies of each chromosome. So the problem with having two cro copies, it's great. It gives diversity. But when you then breed that perfect crop, you can lose the genes that you're interested in um, because you end up selecting like you have the offspring with just the, the wrong you know, the copy without those interesting gene variants. And you also get this kind of um, meiotic crossing, like recombination happening as well. So everything like can go from being perfectly what you want to getting very mixed up um, very quickly. So this is kind of a problem we know about breeding that you create something you like, but then you have to do a lot of um, sort of crossing, crossing, crossing to get this to be sort of a pure homozygous crop that has just the desired traits and not other non-desired traits, if that makes sense, like from a genetic point of view. Mm -hmm. And usually it takes like five to eight generations to get to something that's not going to make a ton of offspring that lack the desired traits. So to get something that's kind of like genetically pure for the desired traits you want. A way to avoid this is just get the thing you want and halve its amount of chromosomes. So this is called the haploid induction. So you just... Don't let it have two, which means it can no longer be doing this recombination. It's, it's now only got one of them. And then you immediately double them again. So now you've got two that are exactly the same. So you've gone in one generation to something that's entirely pure for just having this one type of chromosome. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. So this is the, the doubled haploid induction, and it's insanely useful for breeding. So you basically save, you know, up to eight generations of all of this crossing, crossing, crossing to get the purity. You can just make something pure by halving it and then doubling it again. And the halving happens um, by either doing tissue culture on the gametes, basically the gamete tissue, um, which anyway has like the haploid state um, going through that pathway. Or you can just cross what you have with a mutant that anyway induces um, the formation of embryos that have the wrong number of of um, chromosomes. So that the embryos are haploid. So there's two pathways to get the haploid offspring. And then we also have pathways to make the whole genomes duplicate. I think, Yoram, you already know about some of these. Yeah, it's uh, colchicine is one of the yes. things. <laughs> I had to quickly like fact check that's really that direction. Like this one um, interferes with cell division and makes sure that like um, the genetic material all ends up on one side of the cell instead of being distributed on either end of the cell. And therefore it's not mm -hmm. halving it uh, or like preventing the halving. And therefore the end result is a doubled set of chromosomes. Yeah, and Yoram's actually written a blog post about that a few years ago, um, but yes. we can link to that as well. So yeah, you can then use this this chemical culture scene, or there's also one called orizolin, which oriza is rice, right? So I'm not sure, maybe they first used it on rice. Who knows? You can use chemicals to then double. So then you first haploid, and then you double, and then you get these double haploids. And the point of double haploids, it's like a super nice tool to get to pure, genetically pure plants. So we know that we can play around quite easily now with these amazing methods. We can play with the, pl the ploidy level. We can do this halving and doubling of plants. And we also know that playing around with the ploidy level of plants 
can be tolerated somewhat. So plants themselves, they often have some interesting things happening with ploidy levels, um, whole genome duplications and weird matings that end up with triploid and like multiploidy. So plants, plants can kind of have some flexibility compared to mammals. Like mammals just like don't deal with it at all. And I assume, I don't know, maybe you get death. But we know that plants are more plastic, but even though they're more plastic, we still kind of assume that us coming in and haploiding and then doubling the plants would have some impact in the cell, right? It's it's not like we're just doing these things and the plant doesn't notice it. Mm-hmm. So this is what the new paper is about by Piscords and colleagues. It's published um, this year. They did this doubled haploid induction to three independent populations of Arabidopsis plants. And then they looked at how it impacted the epigenetic state of the plant. So this is these modifications on top of the DNA, um, the bedazzling of the DNA. And they found, perhaps as expected, that there were a ton of differentially methylated regions after they had done this haploid induction and then doubling with the chemical treatment. Mm -hmm. So this in itself is maybe not surprising, like made some changes, got some impacts. But what was really noticeable and an interesting finding here is that the the differently men- differentially methylated region, so the parts with different epigenetic modifications, was not the same across the three populations. It seemed almost like the changes were quite random when you mm-hmm. do this this haploid doubling induction, double it, haploid induction. Yeah, that, that's that's interesting because these methylation changes they can have very different effects, right? Like some of them can actually induce the gene expression while others can block it. So if you have just like a random pattern of methylation, you have a potential random outcome of gene expression levels on the affected regions. Like you can't really predict if whatever, for example, you put a, a gene in there or you breed, uh, cross a gene in there that you want to be made, when the methylation is randomly changed, it could happen that this thing gets silenced and isn't actually active then in your outcome, right? Yeah, I guess I guess you're, you are playing around a little bit with things in some genes. I don't know how much they looked at what the output of this deferential methylation. So they were like looking at the methylation, the types, the different types of epigenetic modifications, um, where they were, how much they were and how they differed amongst the lines. But I don't think they then looked at what the functional output of those changes were. Yeah. So I don't think that was part of the study. Um, they did look at the different types, as I said, of, of modifications. So they found that um, there's the two processes, the induction of the haploids itself. It mostly infected a certain type of modification. So that's non-CG methylation. That was mostly infected by the, the haploid induction. And then when they did the doubling, they got other types of um, modifications. They sort of looked a little bit into the, 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 the impacts from the two different processes. Um, and they also looked at where these modifications were happening. And one thing they did say that was kind of good was that there wasn't too much change to transposable elements, which is good because if you end up like activating transposable elements, elements in crops you can get things moving around and you can just that's very bad news so they're saying okay this it didn't look like it had a lot of impact on those elements so at least that's that's one good thing um here the authors also said that there is some positive from this kind of randomness of the epigenetic changes and that's that we don't really have good ways to specifically 
make epigenetic changes on certain parts. So having this randomness could actually create a kind of tool to mm -hmm. get different epigenetic changes, which can then help us study and understand epigenetic processes. Um, mm -hmm. So there's some potential then as a basic science tool. But the author of the, the short summary was like, okay, that's, this is true, but we also don't know the mechanisms by which this stochastic impacts are happening. So there's, there's a lot of unknown here. Um, that that is going on but it, it is interesting to see that there there are these a lot of changes happening with this process and also that they're not so well defined or clustered i think some part that yoram you really enjoy the author who wrote the summary could not help themselves and i'm sure you'll really appreciate it but they mentioned that you know what we're doing here, this doubled haploid induction, this is a well-established breeding technology that has been used for a while and is considered very safe by the European Union. <laughs> and they are pointing out that, hey, actually, there's a certain amount of unpredictability that is associated with using this technique, um, which, you know... We don't think it, it doesn't seem to have any negative impact, but just when we're comparing our apples of this this safe technique to our oranges of things like CRISPR-Cas9, maybe the known apples don't actually have that many knowns as we, we like to pretend. Mm -hmm. um, so the final sentence of the summary is, at least an equivalent amount of legal tolerance should be applied to newly developed approaches, which by definition are considerably more targeted and whose side effects or off targets have been more thoroughly evaluated. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I mean, we, we already know from like, since the, the dawn of this legislature that it's not based on science, it's based on other motivations in, in defining what's okay and what's not. Um, there have been, like from the from the moment it was put into into law and even before that researchers were saying exactly that they were like hey mm. the things that you will allow are like technically more like probabilistic and less safe therefore or less le than the things that you try to ban yeah it's a thing of like it's it's very hard to prove something is safe understandably you do need time like you need sort of this longer term to look at the impacts so people are like okay but we can also prove that the thing that we do think is safe is less safe and that's in some ways like we're lowering the threshold for what's yeah. considered safe which is like it's an approach of doing things yeah i mean the, the bad outcome would be if that everything gets banned everything gets banned <laughs> so, yeah. plant breeding is legal now because it might be risky yeah, I'm just just wondering if you maybe happen to have any other interesting stories from the incredible journal that is JXB. <laughs> um, yeah, I found uh, two short stories on Rubisco, and I really briefly skimmed over the story, so please don't ask me any hard questions. <laughs> um, the first story that I found um, is using machine learning, so neural networks or fancy statistics, whatever you want to 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 call it, uh, to look <laughs> at. Yeah, I mean, some people say like. like like the people who always have to go against the hype and will be like, oh, it's not actually that cool. It's just statistics. Um, it's actually, I think machine learning can be really cool. Um, so they use machine learning to look at Rubisco, specifically at the large subunit of Rubisco. And this mm -hmm. is something that we've talked about extensively in the past as well. But just a brief summary is that Rubisco is the most abundant enzyme on Earth. It's in all plants. It fixes carbon dioxide from the air into carbon compounds that can then be like organic carbon that can be used by the plant then. Um, 
and has very different specificity for carbon uh, carbon dioxide in its activity. Uh, if it is very low in its specificity, specificity, it can take up oxygen instead, and that, that can lead to photorespiration. That's a wasteful process. Um, and it can also be slow in its carbon uptake, and that is then the rate-limiting step that defines how much carbon the plant is actually able to fix. Uh, so if we want to have plants that grow faster or make more biomass or are more heat-resistant... Um, is yeah we have to fix or like improve rubisco and there's so many people working on this also for decades now um, and now they some researchers turn to machine learning and this is the Iqbal and et al that does in a paper predicting plant rubisco kinetics from rbcl sequence data using machine learning and the title already says what they did they used experimental data as uh, from from all of this rubisco research and fed that into their machine learning model and said i look this is what we experimentally found for the specificity of rubisco or for its for its kin kinetics this is the sequence and then from that the machine learned uh, to link these two together and with mm -hmm. machine learning, we always have, it's sort of a, like a black box. We can't really understand what makes the machine un, uh, know which sequence is related to what kinetics. But in the end, you can feed in that black box new sequences that it hasn't been trained on, and it can then calculate the potential kinetics of it. And they did that, and they saw in like a large data set from they they, they applied it to over nine thousand different sequences of RBCL. Uh, and they found like overall trends replicated again in the data set. So they found that um, C4 plants or like RBCL sequences from C4 plants or CAM, so the Crassolian acid metabolism, they, they found that these had higher carboxylation turnover rates. So a specific trait of these of, of Rubisco that was higher than in C3 species. So overall in the trend, they could see that the black box works and sorts the sequences into the right direction of the kinetics now it's a question if it like specifically works well like if you take a single sequence feed it in mm -hmm. the thing look at the kinetics that it spits out if that actually is true or if it's just true in a, in a bigger data set but this is the first paper that did this sort of machine learning approach for rubisco um, and i think it's it's a pretty cool way of extending the tool set in bioinformatics and like finding the point of these things is always finding new candidates that you then can take into the lab and study and then eventually improve Rubisco by finding it's much easier to screen 9,000 sequences in a computer than to screen 9,000 different Rubiscos in the lab and therefore this is sort of a fast yeah. way to go through all of them and pick out the maybe a hundred that are interesting and then look further into those. I think Yoram, you have another Rubisco story but I'm going to add my little Rubisco thing in here. It's a very old story actually but it's it's new to me so I thought I would share it. Um there was a New Yorker article from 2019, and this was shared via Tom on Instagram. Thank you very much. And the article is overall about sort of whether these new meats or meat alternatives like the Impossible Burger, Beyond Burger, can help fight the climate change, uh, the climate crisis. Sorry. And one of the small things in like it, you have to search for a biscuit through the article because it's quite it's a long article um it's talking about how pat brown who is the ceo of impossible burger so this meat alternative burger actually is really obsessed with rubisco and this is like it's nice so this person has a sort of chemistry background they were originally a professor at stanford and they're actually one of the people who helped 
develop microarrays, which for a long term were just like this major method. Like they really revolutionized a lot of how we understood about what was um, happening at the transcript level. So like what was being expressed. Um, so he had that and now he's sort of gone on to trying to tackle what he thinks is one of the most important problems in the world. I, I tend to agree, climate crisis, big deal. Um, but he has this obsession with that molecular side still, I guess. And so his... For he says, for one year, our prototype burgers used Rubisco, and it worked functionally better than any protein, other protein, making it a juice, making a juicy burger. <laughs> so the idea is that like the Rubisco would be the staple ingredient for the burgers. Um, the problem of that being that actually, while leaves make a ton of Rubisco, leaves also rot, so it's quite hard to get. Rubisco out of them and there's also other things like a ton of cellulose which is again really hard to separate the Rubisco from so you can make a lot of Rubisco but actually sort of purifying it is a bit problematic but I think yeah he seems quite into that and he says we will build a system for producing proteins from leaves and I I guess that's I mean we can make protein in leaves but I guess that's about the extraction as well yeah yeah, I think the downstream processing is always the hard part. I know that uh, like it's fairly easy, for example, in tobacco leaves to induce all kinds of uh, protein synthesis, uh, either transient, so just in just in one leaf, you inject that with some viral DNA or some other methods, and then the leaf makes whatever you want it to make, and then you could extract it from there, or you just like stably transform it, and it constantly making that. But getting it out of the tobacco leaf that's full of other metabolites and other things and cellulose and so on is not always straightforward. So even if you can mm. make high amounts of the protein, getting it pure and extracting it so that you can use it is often the bigger challenge in the whole approach. So, uh, I guess Rubisco has the benefit over those others. This is like often biopharmaceuticals or like some, you know, valuable proteins or valuable chemicals that you can produce in leaves that you then have to extract. And their benefit is that they have a lot of value. So it's worthwhile going through these often expensive extraction processes. Um, Rubisco, I guess, less value. Yeah. <laughs> um, but on the other hand, the plant already produces a ton of it. So with these other products, sometimes making the plant produce a lot of them actually makes the plant sick. Again, understandably, yeah. if you tell the plant to stop making things that it needs for photosynthesis and start making something that makes a pr it a pretty blue color it's fairly yeah. <laughs> it makes a lot of sense that that plant's not going to be super happy but anyway yeah. i thought that was a cute story yeah definitely and so from red meat replacements to red rubiscos um nice. I, <laughs> I found uh, another paper in jxp uh, <laughs> as you hinted at and they looked at the po uh, potential of using a different kind of rubisco that i didn't really ever think about and that's red type rubisco so this comes from rhodophytes that's red algae mm -hmm. And uh, so red algae use a different sort of system of photosynthesis compared to green plants. So they don't have chlorophyll as their basic pigment that is used in the, in the harvesting of light, but they use other pigments instead. And they have some other, like evolutionary, they branched off at some point. And so they have some other um, enzyme compositions or complex compositions in the way they do their photosynthesis. But uh, now researchers uh, looked at, and uh, this is from Jen Guo et al. They looked at um, red rubiscos uh, kinetics or red type rubisco. The rubisco itself, I don't think is actually red. Um, <laughs> but they looked at the kinetics and they found that the kinetics overall are better. They are faster, they are less sensitive to uh, oxygen, so they do less photorespiration. Um, and so potentially could be very interesting uh, 
targets for 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 breeding and um yeah this is a sort of review paper so they they don't have any like final result yet that shows that it that it works but they show the potential of looking deeper into red rubisco and I map out a couple of different pathways we could do to bring red rubisco into um, into green plants. Uh, either we change the green the sequences of the green type rubisco that it's more like the red one, or we bring part of the the red rubisco or the red type rubisco into green plants, or we can actually take the entire red type rubisco and express that in plants. None of these strategies have been successful so far, but there is research being done in in any of these uh, things to to bring these benefits from the red algae into the green plants. Yeah. Rubisco, Rubisco, it's it's it requires a lot of things to put it together as well. So it's not mm-hmm. just about the parts; it's about all the like the scaffolds and the the activates, all these things that have to be yeah involved to actually get it set up. So it does end up being quite complicated in the end. Yeah, okay. like if you just look at the enzyme, it's uh, like a large chain and a short chain, and f- from each you have I think eight copies, and then they are forming together to make this big ball that is Rubisco, so you think, oh yeah, you just need to express two different genes, and then you have it, but no, it's like, they are like very... Like complicated VIPs that always travel with a big entourage that make sure that they're happy at all times, uh, and this is what Rubisco is like. It's it looks like a, a simple couple, but they actually need all of these people to pamper them and take care of them and make sure that they <laughs> don't break down and they're activated and they're ready to go and that they're repaired and all of this stuff. I feel like our our segues are getting better as we do this podcast, but our similes are getting worse. <laughs> it's like it's like a lion wandering on the Serengeti, and it doesn't matter. We're award winning, so we can't be that bad at it. <laughs> okay, so this is not about lions. It's just about a different journal. I thought we should probably move away from JXB for a second, and it's a little bit old news, but it's something that Yoram and I haven't talked about yet, just because we took a really long sabbatical at the end of the year, and I think it was announced in November last year. And it's the fact that eLife um, is going to be doing the review process in a different way. So eLife is this big journal um, that was launched, I don't know, maybe like six years ago, something like that. Um, Yeah, established in 2012. And then I think... That's 10 years ago. Okay, so it's 10 years ago. Wow. Um, And it's been the Wellcome Trust, the Max Planck Society, and the Howard Hughes Medical Institute putting a lot of um, funding into that to start this journal off. Um, And they're trying to shake things up a little bit with the way the review process happens, which is something that, you know, a lot of academics obviously hate and say is not very transparent. And they're trying to make that process a whole lot more transparent. And the way this works now is that they'll get submissions and there will still be some choice by the editors to decide what actually gets sent out to peer review so there'll still be some desk rejections as far as i can see um but then once the review process is initiated there isn't any rejection post review Mm -hmm. so something gets sent to review if it looks interesting and then there's comments on how how that paper looks and how it should be developed further and what's missing to make it more you know reliable and robust but this post-review version will be put online. It will be published online. And then if they want, the authors can further do the revisions and make a version of record, which will be the final thing. So Mm -hmm. they will still have to sort of, I think, 
not do what the reviewers say, but follow those suggestions to get this version of record. But everything will be online. And I think including the reviewers' comments and also there'll be a bit more of an explicit understanding of what the thoughts are regarding the robustness and novelty of the science based on the review process. So it's going to be a lot more transparent once the paper goes out to review. So there should be full transparency as far as... I think I think it's interesting because it's it's definitely necessary to change something about the process. There's like mm-hmm. so many things that are, are wrong with the process. But it also, this change requires a change in the reading behavior because having like the old style you know what is published went through so many stages and and edit editing that i tend to to impose certain level of trust already i mean we've had countless examples of of things where it can go wrong like the trust might not always be um um, should not always be given but in general you can trust what's published but if, if something is published where the reviewers would say in a traditional setting this is not worth publishing but then it gets online and then it's there with the reviewers comments as a reader i have to understand that and make up my own mind by reading the original publication and what the reviewers said about it so it it's i don't think it's necessarily uh worse or also maybe not necessarily better but it, it, it puts a little bit more work on the reader, but also a bit more potential that the readers can make up for some of the shortcomings that the traditional model has. So things that wouldn't make it usually can now make it. Um, and then it's up to the readers to figure out what they can learn from that, what's published. So there's two responses to that. The first is there would still be a version of record. So this final version of record would still be what you're currently reading as the like everybody's checked this so it's fine so you could still have that you would just opt to read the version of record so this would be something like in between a preprint, which hasn't been seen by anything anyone um and the version of record so you'd still have version as record as like final vetted by everyone the preprint would be vetted by nobody and then this one would be vetted by the editors so like interesting and then also have comments by the reviewers and the second point i want to say is like the the reviewer comments also they're supposed to rate the paper in a clear way across two criteria which is like sort of the novelty um so the significance of the findings and the strength of the support and those have defined categories so either landmark fundamental important valuable or useful for the significance of the finding and then the strength of the support can be exceptional compelling convincing solid incomplete inadequate so then if you saw a paper where it's like inadequate that would be like oh this is maybe not something i should be considering as Mm -hmm. well enough supported so there should be some these clues yeah the arguments so the arguments for this and um i'll link to an article that discusses this in a bit more detail has some nice diagrams in case you can't understand the because i found it hard to understand what was actually happening um and also discusses from a, a scientist's point of view so somebody with a lab's point of view how this could be beneficial and they're talking about the fact that quite often you have like three reviewers often looking at a paper but what they ask for as experimental backup can really depend on their own interests and more and more there's this sort of thing of oh you did some basic research in arabidopsis or tomato or tobacco now show me that same thing in a crop plant which you know people who are doing pure science argue is not really necessary and it's putting Mm -hmm. this 
very inaccessible stop <clears throat> on getting to the next step. And so then you would be able to see, oh, the reviewers think that the actual conclusions of this paper are really well supported, but they wanted more, which is a different thing. So that would be like, you'd see, oh, the significance, the, the novelty is not as high because they want it in a crop, but actually the support is very high. So they were saying like, it stops that kind of gatekeeping um, at that stage. Yeah. There would be still some editorial gatekeeping, um, but that's one of the discussions. Anyway, I thought I would put that discussion online because I'm I'm not sure what to think about this and I'm not sure how this will end up working out. I'm not sure if it becomes messy. We have seen some mess with preprints where people are citing preprints as if they have been peer-reviewed, which can be problematic. But I think we can also see a lot of benefits of having preprints, right? So a little of column A, a little of column B maybe? So I think I think this is a really we'll link to the site which has this interesting discussion. Um, this is from the Kamun Lab, and they also I mean the title of the piece is "Will the Academics Prisoner Dilemma Impact eLife 2.0?" So this restructuring of eLife, and I just wanted to mention this as because I don't think it's one of the potential biases in the system that we've talked about before on the podcast. Let's talk 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 about bias 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 while since we played that <laughs> um so again i'm linking to another article on medium it's by james heathers this time and it's called some people hate open science this is what they think and it details some of the issues with open science as they might exist but the thing i want to talk about now is that academic prisoners dilemma which i think james is the one who first sort of discussed this idea and it's basically saying that if you imagine that there's two researchers, researcher A and researcher B, and they work in the same area, because of their interdependence on each other, they review each other's papers and grants, and then they they sort of are in this same ecosystem, they need to be quiet on certain things. There's a limitation of how much they can criticize the other person. And the prisoner di dilemma is this classic dilemma where you have like two people... Wait, is it? It's okay. when you have two people that are, um, like, you are involved, like, two people are involved in a robbery. Um, mm -hmm. Both of them are being caught, but there is no proof. There is no evidence. Mm -hmm. But if one of them turns on the other, the one that, like, speaks up, gets l a reduced prison sentence. So yeah. they, the, they, if they speak up and if they hand in their, their, their mate, then the mate goes for, to prison for a long time, they go to prison for a short time. If both of them keep quiet, no, nobody goes to prison. But if mm -hmm. the other one speaks up and they stay quiet, then they go to prison for a long time. And that's the di dilemma. So do you take like for certain that you go to a short time in pr to prison or do you gamble mm -hmm. that your mate keeps the, their mouth sh uh, shut and you both don't go to prison at all? That's the dilemma. So... Mm -hmm. um you you must yeah you have to trust the other person to do the thing for the bigger for the greater good um and trusting you as well okay so in the academic circles this is like and then i'm going to just read from this piece here if they are both silent with regards to strong criticism of each other's errors they both have the freedom to publish what they want direct criticism would quickly devolve into a mutual loss of trust interfering with the ability to publish papers or receive grant money so they're saying that like because of the interdependence of these two people 
they can disagree in conclusions. In fact, like disagreeing in conclusions can actually be good for business because you publish more sort of showing proof for your side. But as soon as you start disagreeing sort of with like or criticizing the science and the person behind the science and like even the science itself, even when it's bad science, that can be destructive for the ability to stay in, in the field. So this is what is referred to as the academics prisoners div, um, dilemma where two people in the academic circles have this interdependence and therefore that prevents them from being openly critical of science. And so that is one of these arguments against open science because yes, it's good if reviewers' comments are seen, but those reviewers' comments themselves will already be less honest or less, you know... Mm-hmm perhaps even accurate than they could be because of this interdependence that's one of the arguments so again i'll link to this because i think it's quite a nice article that explains some of the the questions and the arguments with with moving forward into this direction um but yeah it's a cool thing cat fact i have today a cat fact um about a very rare bunny cat which is it's 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 not a cat a bunny it's a bunny um and this this bunny um it's uh called an amami pentalagos fonesi um it's known it's, it's living on the ryukyu islands and i think that is in um in japan um because it was studied by the kobe university in japan um and this bunny what what's unusual about this bunny is that bunnies usually eat the flowery parts and the stems of plants they don't really eat the fruit they eat the leaves um Mm. so when you think about the the propagation of the plant the dispersal of their seeds bunnies don't really play a role because they don't eat the part where the seeds are they eat the leaves um but Mm -hmm. this bunny um from this this island um has been observed uh, to eat the fruit of a local species and that's uh balanophora juvanensis um it's a local plant, and uh, now researchers looked at this little bunny um, and s- fruit, weird, but then also looked at its poop and saw that the seeds survived going through the whole bunny and um, that it was actually transporting the seeds to other locations um, and therefore helping with the dispersal of this plant. And what makes this plant special is that this is a parasitic plant, um, so it doesn't do its own photosynthesis and it relies on other plants to live. And the dispersal through this rabbit um, helps them to find new host plants um, because sometimes they poop in nearby the roots of uh, a potential host plants and then the seeds can then um, establish them, themselves there and grow on a on a host plant and continue their parasitic lifestyle and all of that through the help of this little rabbit that's just want that just wants to eat the the fruit of this parasitic plant and that's an unusual case of a rabbit or a bunny being a seed disperser um, for plants. Very cool. So weird looking rabbit as well. Yeah, like it doesn't really have long bunny ears. It's um, like. Yeah, very short eared. Uh, it's lo- it looks more like a mouse, to be honest. But apparently, yeah, it's got biologically, a sort of Australian marsupial look to it almost. I mean, yeah, it's not, but it's got it. Yeah, cool, very nice. Yeah. Uh, that is it. That is all we have for the show today. I think. Yes. Um, thank you for joining us. Uh, you can find us on the Instagram and on the Facebook at Plants and Pipettes. Also on Mastodon at Plants and Pipettes <laughs> dot. Uh, dot podcast.social or at 
podcast.social and on Twitter. That's at Plants Per Pets. We also have a website, plantsandpipettes.com, recently freshened up a little bit in its in its look. There you find articles um, and put all of the podcast episodes. You can rate us wherever you list podcasts. That would be cool. Tell your friends about us. Thank you for listening. Opening and closing music's Caravana by Philip Gross. Goodbye. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> your arm has somewhere to go. <laughs>